God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though its mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. Good morning, Gospel City Granger. Good morning, Gospel City Elkhart. Praise God that we can worship God this morning. If death can't stop us from worshiping God, I'm certain that neither can COVID-19. Can I, can I just read God's word to you from Luke chapter 18 this morning? There's, there's been so much coming into our hearing, the, the news, opinions, conversations. Can I just let God's word sort of break through all of that and meet us where we are this morning? So allow me just to, just to read the holy word of God. God speaking to us present day in our midst and let this word wash over you. Hear the word of the Lord. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to a temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified and not the other one. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called to him saying, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. 
For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter into it. The reading of God's holy word. Before we even dive into God's text this morning, I want to make sort of two large observations about Luke chapter 18, two sort of umbrella observations. And the first has to do with the people who are involved in Luke chapter 18, a widow, a tax collector, and a child. Sounds like the beginning of a bad joke, but it's not. A widow, a tax collector, and a child, what all three of these have in common in that Christ's day, these folks were ostracized, fringe, marginalized, look down upon in the midst of society. And we're going to see that throughout this entirety of this text. And oftentimes, brothers and sisters, when we approach the marginalized, we often want to teach them something how to assimilate, how to blend in. But Christ, in sort of his gracious nurturing of us, tells us to look at them if we want to know how to approach God. So this morning, Christ is saying, you, you want to know how to approach me? And all of us are like, yeah, Christ, we want to know how to approach you. Then Christ grabs a widow who has a very low societal standing. He grabs a tax collector who's sort of the epitome throughout scripture as the height of wickedness and selfish sin. Grabs a child who has no ability to defend for themselves. And he says to us, learn from them. We can't miss sort of the shock and awe of what Christ is doing in Luke chapter 18 in his day. A modern day sort of illustration of this is like Christ is saying to us, you want to learn how to approach me. You want to know how to come into my presence. Then Christ sort of modern day goes out into the streets, grabs a person who is experiencing homelessness, brings them before us and says, learn from them. Because in Christ's day, the widow was often homeless. Christ goes out into the street and he grabs a prostitute off of the street because Luke often connects the two. In his gospel, he often connects a tax collector and a prostitute to sort of show the height of sin. Christ grabs the prostitute, brings her before us and says, if you want to know how to humbly come before me, look, look to them. Then he grabs sort of the talkative baby in the midst of worship who distracts even the best of what we do in worship. And he brings them before our presence and he says, learn from this child. Christ, throughout all of scripture, he loves the vulnerable. He has a particular interest in the vulnerable, which is why I love the decision of us sort of worshiping and and preaching and gathering in an empty congregation. Because the decision is sort of like, let's look after the vulnerable. This is very much what Christ would have done. That's the who of the text. The what of the text is all about approaching God. Approaching God in prayer. Approaching God in confession. 
approaching God and entering his kingdom. Get that, get that, beloved. We get to approach God. That is a phenomenal thought. Tim Keller helps us with this when he says the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We get that kind of access. It's marvelous. So then, as we sort of learn from the marginalized this morning, let's, let's look to the widow and learn how to pray to God. Coming off of our kingdom passes last week, Christ now in Luke chapter 18, verse 1, gives them a parable. And I love what Christ does. He sort of gives the front door code to enter into this parable in that he tells us why he is giving this parable. Notice in Luke chapter 18, verse 1, he told him a parable. Why, Christ? Why are you telling us this parable? That they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Beloved, we don't have to figure out what Christ is getting ready to say. The interpretation the king has given us to us, he, he's telling us that the reason for this parable is that we should not lose heart and we should always pray. Why does Christ tell his disciples to always pray and not lose heart? Why does Christ tell us to always pray and not lose heart? Beloved, because we have that tendency. When God is sort of slow in answering our request, we stop praying. Listen, I, I love and I believe in the sovereignty and providence of God in this moment. That it is no accident that we are covering a text on prayer in the midst of everything that we're going through. God is sovereign and he is good to us that in the midst of this, he would give us a text and say, remember church, pray always, don't lose heart. I love his sovereignty because I believe that there are, are folks who are, who are listening even right now that have decided that they're going to stop praying about some things because they don't think it's making a difference. Some folks who, who even said this past week or this past month, I'm, I'm done praying about my marriage. It doesn't make a difference. Nothing is changing. Folks who have said last week or last month, I'm, I'm done praying about these health issues. It, it doesn't make a difference. Nothing is changing. Folks who have said last week or this last month, I'm done praying about my unbelieving family member. That they would come to know who Jesus Christ is. It's not making a difference. I've been praying for 10 years and nothing is changing. If I can be honest, I'm, I'm sort of preaching to myself here in Luke chapter 18. Because just this past week, I was tempted to sort of gave in to this thinking that praying is futile. Praying doesn't matter. Sort of bringing you into the sort of inner recesses of my own heart. One of my biggest requests right now is that the church of God would remember that this world is not our home. 
for citizens passing through. And I often go to the Lord like, Lord, would you help us even in the midst of this political season? Remember that Christ is our king. He is eternal. Will we have more posts and conversation about his eternal rule than the temporal rule of any presidential candidate? Last week I said, Lord, why does it even matter? Sort of gazed out on Facebook and Twitter what good is my prayer? It's not making a difference. In a real sense, beloved, then, God in his goodness, God in his kindness has sort of hand-wrapped this passage and is delivering it to you and I right now. Christ is saying, even in the midst of that temptation to stop praying, that Christ is saying, no, don't stop praying. Keep praying and fighting for your marriage. Keep praying and fighting for salvation. Keep praying and fighting for the church of God. Keep praying and fighting for protection. The king is delivering a gift this morning to our present day, and he's having us unwrap it this day and pray to him, reminding us that the king is listening. Though we oftentimes think he's slow, he's not slow as men count slowness. He's listening, and he will answer. Can we make immediate application of this text right now? Because I know sometimes we we hear a sermon like, you know, we ought to pray and not lose heart. And oftentimes in our minds, we'll say, you know, as soon as the sermon is over, as soon as the service is over, I'm going to do just that. I'm going to pray to God. There are some things that I've been thinking about that I shouldn't have stopped praying for, but I did. I knew I should have kept praying for that, but I stopped. And after the service is over, I'm going to pray about that thing. But then the sermon is done, the worship is over, and life hits us square in the face. And we forget, or we get distracted. So can we, even right now, unwrap this this gift that the king has given to us? Can we unwrap it right now? And and just take a a few moments, beloved, wherever you are, can we just pause for a moment? And and that thing that you have stopped praying about, that Christ is speaking in right now, pray about this thing. Can we just take a few moments wherever you are and just go to the king and say, Lord, I hear you. You told me not to stop praying, so I'm praying right now. I'm praying for deliverance. I'm praying for salvation. I'm praying for this issue or that issue. I'm praying for justice. Let's just pause and pray to the King of Kings right now. This widow had 
was her persistence. That's, that's all she had. She, she couldn't pay off the judge in this text because the widow in, in Luke's day, they were impoverished. She couldn't go to her family because uh, actually at this time, her family probably would have moved away. All this widow had was her persistence. Oh, would we approach the throne of God like that? Like, Lord, I don't have anything else to bring to you. The only thing I can do is keep coming back to you and keep coming back to you. I can't fix this situation on my own. And notice in Luke chapter 18, she didn't even try to. Look to the widow. She, she couldn't fix it on her own. She had to keep going back. She had to keep going back to the judge. When, when, when she saw that she didn't get an answer, she didn't stop. She persisted. Saints, when, when God is slow to answer, it's not a green light to fix it on our own. It, it is a gift from God to rest in his providence and sovereignty that he will answer in his perfect timing and it will be for our good. Listen to the rhetorical question that sort of screams out of the pages at us in verse 7. Will not God give justice to his elect? who cry to him day and night, will he delay long over them? I love that. Will God not hear us? The one who captures our tears in the bottle, will he not hear us and answer us? I love when the teacher of a class sort of gives the answer to the question, their own question, they give the answer. Notice how Christ answered his own question in verse eight. Just in case there was a disciple saying, I don't know, Lord. I don't, I don't know. Will you answer me? Will you take a long time and answer our request? Will you bring justice? And Christ says, let me give you the answer. I tell you, he will give them justice and it will be quickly. I love that. No matter how long it takes for, for Christ to answer, when he answers, in light of everything, it will seem like it's quick. That's the grace of Christ. And then the answer given in verse 8 sort of connects the entirety of this passage when Christ says, however, nevertheless, the question of this text is not, will Christ answer the prayers of his people? That's an answer. The answer is yes. That's the promise of God. Here's the question. Will he find faith when he comes? When the Son of Man comes, brothers and sisters, he's, he's going to fix everything. He's going to take everything. He's going to heal. He's going to make right. Christ is going to do all of these things. But when he comes, will we be faithful? We've got to understand the connection between what Christ is going to do then versus how we pray now. Christ in his glorious wonder sort of allows our prayers to bring about his will. So that our prayers are not meaningless. Our prayers have power as they connect to the will of God. What Christ is going to do then, we get a part in that now. 
in how we pray. So it can be rightly said, hey, if God fixes broken marriages, why did he do that? Because his people started praying. If God brings salvation, why did he do that? Because his people started praying and did not lose heart. If COVID-19 isn't as bad as it could have been, why? Because his people are worshiping and praying even right now. Our prayers bring about the goodwill of God. Even our prayers bring about his second coming. But will, when Christ returns, will he find his people faithful? And if you're looking at this text and like, what, what, what does that mean? What does that mean Will he find faith? What kind of faith is Christ talking about? What does he mean? But I'm glad that you asked. Let's keep reading. We look to the widow. Now let's look to another marginalized person in Luke's day. That is the tax collector. The the faith that Christ is talking about, that will he find, is, is found in these next two accounts of this tax collector and these children. Again, I love how Christ sort of gives us the front door code to this parable. Like, Christ, why are you telling us this parable about a tax collector and a Pharisee? Why? Look at verse 9. He he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Can Can I collapse everything I'm getting ready to say about this Pharisee and tax collector parable, can I just collapse it into one phrase? Let me collapse it like this. Heaven will be filled with bad people who trust in Christ. And hell will be filled with good people who trusted in themselves. Let me put that another way. Heaven will be filled with poor, broken, wretched sinners who put their faith in Christ and Christ alone. And hell will be filled with moral, good citizens who put their faith in themselves and in themselves alone. Look to the Pharisee and the tax collector. The best way to do this is to sort of just break this thing down, this whole parable of the Pharisee and tax collector. Let's, let's, this word that Christ is speaking against the self-righteous and those who have contempt towards one another, let's break this thing down. Because oftentimes we'll read that and ask the question, well, a- am I that person? Am I the self-righteous? Do I speak with contempt about other people? Sort of breaking it down into a three-question exam for us this morning. And based upon the answers to this exam, if you're asking a question, am I that self-righteous person? Do I look at others with contempt? If you pass this exam, you can surely know that you or I are self-righteous. Question number one of this exam. Do you feel comfortable in the presence of a holy God because of Jesus Christ? Or do you feel comfortable in the presence of a holy God because you truly believe you're not that bad of a person? 
Do you feel comfortable in the presence of a holy God because of the person and work of Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished? Or do you feel comfortable in the presence of a holy God because you're like, hey, I'm not that bad anyway? Notice the difference with the Pharisee and the tax collector. Look at verse 11 of Luke chapter 18. The Pharisee just sort of goes right into it. He walks right into this prayer like, Lord, here I am. I'm just going to start talking to you. Contrast that then with what happens in verse 13. The the tax collector couldn't even look his eyes to heaven. He couldn't even look to that place where God is dwelling. He knew the holiness of God while simultaneously knowing his own sinfulness and brokenness. Lord, I can't even, I can't even, I can't even look to you right now. Sinful, yet you are, you are holy. Saints, all of us are, if we sort of take a scalpel and examine our hearts, all of us are the tax collectors in our hearts, but oftentimes, saints, we have to be real. We're the Pharisee in our actions. Like, Lord, I, I'm coming into your presence because there's nothing wrong with me. You, you, should, you should accept me just like I am. Oh, he does. But if we think he's going to keep us as we are, we got another thing coming. How do we feel comfortable in the presence of a holy God? Because of ourselves or because of Jesus Christ? Question number two. Do you compare yourselves to the holiness of God when you pray? Or do you compare yourselves to other broken people when you pray? How is your comparison system? Oftentimes, we sort of go into the presence of God with sort of a broken comparison system, like, Lord, accept me for who I am because I'm not as bad as that other person over there. Look at verse 11. God, I thank you. Why does the Pharisee thank God because God is so good and so right and so holy? No, I thank you, God, because I'm not like other people. Then contrast that with verse 13. Be merciful to me, a sinner. A good way to sort of answer this question is when when you pray, how often do you find yourself Confessing your own sins versus confessing somebody else's sins. When you pray, often you go before God like, God, I am broken. Forgive me for this. Or like, Lord, look at that person over there. Would you bring them to yourself? At times, brothers and sisters, we're sort of good at at seeing other people in all of their sinfulness and all of their brokenness and sort of glazing over our own sin and brokenness. Can I give you a heartfelt illustration this morning? Can I just keep it real with you for for just one moment? I was at Costco a couple weeks ago. I wasn't buying toilet paper because they didn't have any then either. So I was at Costco and I was walking through and I sort of had like this, this shirt on, some swag. I don't know if it was like Great Commission Collective or whatever the case may be, but I was walking through Costco and I saw, I met a guy who was from Niles. And we began to talk, and I said, hey, I'm Stephen Love. And he said, hey, my name is 
X. And I said, man, it's so great to meet you. And he asked me what I do. I said, well, I'm a pastor on staff at Gospel City Church. I'm getting ready to plant a church in South Bend, Redemption City Church. And he looked at me. He said, you're, you're planting a church in South Bend? I said, yeah, man, I am. He said, oh, South Bend really needs the gospel. And I said, well, amen, brother. South Bend does really need the gospel. Does Niles really need the gospel? See, see, see saints, we're, we're good at looking at people who manifest their sins differently than what we do. Amen. South Bend needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. Does Granger really need the gospel of Jesus Christ? Amen. South Bend needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. Does Mishawaka really need the gospel of Jesus Christ? Amen. South Bend really needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. Does all of Michiana need to be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or have we become good at looking at the sins of somebody else while all the while thinking we're pretty good? See, folks, until we, until we get to that point that we're like, Lord, I am the biggest one in need of your grace. We are Pharisees. Until we get to that place we're like, Lord, if you're going to pour out grace, start with me. I'm the most broken. If we begin there, we sort of move ourselves out of the Pharisaical camp. But if we're like, Lord, if you're going to pour out grace, pour it on somebody else, we become Pharisees. Like, Lord, look at, look at them. Look at, look at what they're doing. I thank God I'm not as bad as they are. And notice what question three is. Do you in your prayers think that God is lucky to have you and his kingdom wouldn't be the same without you? Look at verse 12. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. That the Pharisee has the audacity to list his credentials before an almighty God. I go above and beyond. I'm at church every time the doors open. I gave more than anybody else to the building campaign. I work in children's ministry more than anybody else. God, you are lucky to have me in your kingdom. Meanwhile, afar off, the tax collector is simply saying, have mercy. I have nothing to bring you, God. I have nothing to offer you, Lord. I am in just need of your great and awesome mercy. I imagine if the tax collector can sing that old song, he would sing, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Fool I to thy fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Is that us? Lord, if, if you don't do it, how, it's, it's not going to be done. Or are we like, Lord, look, look at my bullet points. Here's my resume. You need me. That's like, no, no, no. God doesn't need us. 
He doesn't need you and I. He loves to use us. He loves to bring us into his service. He loves to display his glory in and through us. But beloved, we can never begin to think that God needs us. If we don't worship him, he will make the rocks cry out. If we don't worship him, this pile of dirt behind Gospel City will sing his praises. He doesn't need us, but beloved, he chooses to use us. Praise his holy God. Let's rip up our resumes and our credentials and say, Lord, if you use me, it is only because of your grace and your mercy. If you me a, a broken sinner, you would, you would allow me to stand on this platform and sing a song? Me, a broken sinner, you allow me to enter in and worship you? Me, a broken sinner, you would allow me to open up your text and say, thus saith the Lord? Pharisee's prayer was 33 words, and it was filled with self-righteous hot air. Tax collector, meanwhile, seven words. And the tax collector went home, made right with God. The tax collector went home justified. He's saying, Lord, I'm a broken sinner. And in the midst of that, God came in and he justified that man. He gave that man joy. He saved his heart. Our omission of brokenness before the Lord doesn't exclude us from coming into his presence. It kicks the doors down into his presence. Quality, not quantity. Quality, not quantity. And beloved, this would shock Luke's hearers. When they were asked the question, like, who is more righteous in God's sight? Would it be this, this Pharisee who's sort of a righteous, moral, good person? Or is it this broken, wretched, selfish task collector? All of them would answer, well, clearly it's the Pharisee. He's righteous. He's moral. And all of them would have been wrong. But what? The, the, the Pharisee has this, this great religion. He's, he's coming before you. He's given to you. He's, he's before you all the time. And the Lord is sort of screaming out from this text, God isn't looking for good religiosity. He's looking for broken humility. God isn't looking for our good religiosity. He's looking for us to come before him and say, Lord, not my righteousness, but Christ's righteousness. Not myself. But I need Jesus to do this thing. And notice in Luke chapter 18 that God is sort of better at doing everything than what we are. God is greater at doing everything than what we are. Notice how the parable of the Pharisee and tax collector concludes. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. God is better at doing everything than what we are. So we have a choice, beloved. We can exalt ourselves in our weak strength and let the almighty hand of God humble us. Or we can humble ourselves in our weak strength and let the almighty hand of God exalt us. I prefer the latter. The widow, the tax collector. Now we can't, we can't forget about the children. Christ says in this last sort of illustration as he's with his disciples, we, we can't forget about the kids. 
We need to enter like the children. We're, we're learning from the marginalized. We learn how to pray from the widow. We learn how to confess from the tax collector. Now let's learn how to enter from the kids. All of this was going on. And, and people were bringing their kids to Jesus Christ that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked him. Like, Lord, are you crazy? You can't be touching these babies without hand sanitizer. It's real in the streets, Christ. It's out here. Better get some hand sanitizer. It's sold out. Sorry, Jesus. Hand sanitizer, sold out. Kingdom of God is, is opened. I love what Wes Pastor West stood up here and said, the gospel is open for all who are broken. Christ says anyone who would enter like a child, meaning that the, the doors of his kingdom are wide open. If you would just enter like this child, this illustration, the, the doors of the kingdom are, are wide open. They're not closed. But, but, the, but they're for the sort of the humble. They're for the broken. They're for the one who realizes that they have no righteousness in themselves, that all of their righteousness comes from Jesus Christ. Let me summarize this entire kids section like this. Kids are often a distraction, but they're not always a bad distraction. Even the disciples sort of realized this. They're like, Jesus, you can't let the kids distract us from the good, powerful things that we're doing. Jesus, you can't let the kids distract you from real ministry. Parents, why are you bringing those babies, those crying babies to Jesus? We're doing the real work of ministry here. Leave those kids to the side. And then Christ does what he rarely does. He rebukes his disciples. He rebukes his disciples, all of them. One of the rare times in all of scripture that Christ would rebuke all of his disciples and he rebukes them because they're hindering the babies from being brought to Jesus Christ. I love, I might be a little weird in this, but I love hearing babies in worship. You know, parents who, who bring your kids in and they sort of sit in the back with the babies. I love hearing the laughing and the cooing and the crying. That's sort of music to my ears. And I think in sort of my spiritual sanctified imagination, I think that Christ wants to teach us something when kids are around. I think having kids in and around us is a sanctifying experience for us. Like we hear babies talking in worship and we're like, shh, that's a distraction. I wonder if God is sort of saying, well, you mad because they talking? Why don't you have anything to say to me? Like we hear babies laughing in worship and we're like, shh, don't, don't, don't laugh, that's a distraction. I wonder if God is sort of saying to you and I, yeah? you're mad at them because they're laughing, we're... Where is your joy in everything that I've given you? We hear the babies crying in worship, like, shh, don't cry, shh, be quiet, give them some candy. It's a distraction. One of Christ is sort of saying to us, you're, you're, you're mad because they're crying. Why are you so fenced off? Why can't you be vulnerable enough to show emotion in my presence? 
Christ rebukes his disciples one of the rare times because they're preventing the children from coming to him. So Christ says in verse 16, let the children come to us. This is a strong word, let. It's not just like, hey, disciples part the way and allow the parents to bring the kids. No, Christ is sort of giving the disciples a command. Your role now is to bring the kids to me. And if Christ is teaching his disciples something, it is a discipleship moment. This is now part of their discipling. And part of their discipling now, part of their role is to now bring the kids to Jesus Christ. Not only not hinder them, but bring them. For such is the kingdom of God. I don't know about you, beloved, but if Christ says that some category of people some demographic of people, if you're around them, you will understand how it is to enter the kingdom of God. I want to be around those people. I want to know what it is. What is it about kids that Christ says such is the kingdom of heaven? Is it their snotty, runny noses? Is it their free spirit? The text sort of gives us room to investigate, but in all of that, I'm like, Lord, if, if that's the group of people that tells us that that's what it's like to enter your kingdom, I need to be around them. Christ says, let, bring the kids to me. Bring these babies to me. Disciples, this is part of your discipling. Bring them. Allow them to come closer to Jesus Christ. And by you allowing the kids to come closer to me, you yourselves will be drawn closer to Jesus Christ. Let me say this, beloved. Wherever you are, you're listening, members of Gospel City, we have, we have children's ministry every week at Gospel City. Every week we have children's ministry. I wonder what it would look like then if we thought as members of Gospel City that Christ says part of our discipling is to be around these kids who gives us the imitation of what it looks like to enter the kingdom of God. I wonder what the hand raises would look like if we took that seriously. Like, Lord, I don't know what it is about kids, but you tell us they are sort of the entrance mechanism into the kingdom of God. I want to be around them. Not only be around them, but you're telling me in Luke chapter 18, it is part of my duty to now bring the kids to you. I wonder what volunteerism would look like in the children's ministry if we understood the full breadth of our role as disciples. I wonder what that would look like. Like, Lord, I don't know what you mean by this, but I need to investigate. I don't know what you mean by that, but Lord, I need to do this. Could it be a direct application of this passage? Could it be? Just spiritual imagination. Could it be a direct application that in our context, one of the ways that we can apply what Jesus Christ is saying here is like, hey, what? What do I need to do to serve in children's ministry? If Christ took this seriously, if he rebuked the disciples for not doing it, what does that look like for me? See, saints, I don't believe a direct application is we should disciple our own kids. We should definitely do that, and there are hundreds of passages of Scripture that say that. But Jesus Christ tells the disciples to bring somebody else's kids to his feet. 
to ensure that somebody else's kids were brought to him and to learn from Jesus Christ. I wonder what the hand raises would look like. I feel like, Lord, I need to learn from this, this even marginalized in our society group of people. I need to be around them to learn from them. A widow, a tax collector, and a child. All of these people have something in common. They're they're all marginalized. They're all sort of on the outskirts of society. And as a result, they are all brothers and sisters. They are all totally dependent on someone else. And Christ brought them to us today as an object lesson of what total dependence on God and prayer should look like. Christ brought them to us today to help us understand what trusting in God and confession looks like. Christ brought them to us today to understand what trusting in Jesus Christ to enter like a child looks like in total dependence, nothing of ourselves, only Jesus Christ. Christ is showing us in Luke chapter 18 what it means to completely and totally trust him. What if we totally trusted God like the widow in our prayers? What if we totally trusted God like the tax collector in our confession? What if we totally trusted God that the gates of his kingdom are even now open if we would just walk in humbly and totally dependent? What does it look like to completely and totally trust in Jesus Christ? Saints, I want to trust God 